0: Does anybody know what a contract is under law? It has a very particular, really simple, but very particular definition. It's an agreement. It's a legal agreement between two parties who are. Hmm? In accord. In accord. They're consenting. By definition, they're equal. Right? A contract is not something you do with your subordinate, that's not a negotiation. You tell a subordinate, right? This is the deal. You want the job? Here's the deal. I'm in charge, right? And we have lots of those kinds of experiences today as well. But a contract, at least under law, is supposed to be between two consenting parties who have basic equality to negotiate as equals. Now, what is the charter? The charter is not a contract, right? The charter is the state legislature telling investors We're happy to have you incorporate to do this thing that you want to do to make profit, but here are the rules. You interested? Here are the requirements. Here are the prohibitions. If the investors are game, they write the subordinating document, the charter of a corporation, and the company exists. It's brought into existence. It's literally brought into existence out of nothing by a state legislature. It's a state-created thing, a corporation. The trustees of New Hampshire were claiming, I'm sorry, the trustees of Dartmouth College were claiming that it was a it was a contract between the King of England and the trustees, and therefore the state of New Hampshire had to keep its hands off the charter. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it's it's kind of crazy what happened along the way. But in 1819, the Supreme Court ruled that yes, indeed, a a corporate charter is a contract. And from that point forward, once a state legislature brought a corporation into existence, it couldn't change the charter unilaterally. It had to negotiate for the change. That's both complicated and simple to understand. Are you you mostly with me? Okay. So that's 1819, and they used, the trustees used the Contracts Clause of the US Constitution. That was where they based their claim was the Contracts Clause. It's basically a clause about how government needs to kind of keep its hands off of people who are consenting, people or institutions who are consenting to contracts, right? Giving them the power to make their own contracts. So for the first time in U.S. history, starting in 1819, government, representing we the people, is starting to have its hands tied because the Supreme Court has found corporate rights in the Contracts Clause of the U.S. Constitution. We jump now to the mid-1800s, to the second of my four examples. In the mid-1800s, early industrial revolution is starting to happen. And we have companies that are starting to produce products in more manufacturing type situations instead of in cottage industry. Work is fundamentally changing. It's becoming more centralized and mass produced. And in that process, Um, People are starting to get hurt more, right? We're going into the beginning of assembly lines. People are losing their control over their work lives. A lot of massive cultural change in the mid to late 1800s. There was an inventor who came up with a way to turn slaughterhouse waste into oleomargarine. That was the original margarine product in this country. It was a basic process. You add yellow food coloring, and you call it a safe and healthy alternative to butter. <laughs> and this started in the, 18, in the mid-1800s. Well, people, again, were not only... They were appalled, and they were scared. They didn't trust the product. As you can imagine, the, the folks who made butter were also a little nervous about the competition. And what started to happen is state after state started banning the manufacture or sale or transportation Of oleomargarine. This became a really big deal in the mid 1800s. And this particular case is just one of hundreds of cases, but all of these cases worked their way through the system. This one took over 30 years to reach the US Supreme Court, but in the 1880s, the Supreme Court ruled that it was not permissible for a local government or a county government or a state government to ban the sale or manufacture or transport of a product in a state that they no longer had that kind of jurisdiction because it violated corporate constitutional rights under the Commerce Clause of the US Constitution. And the Commerce Clause is just this simple phrase that says something like, um, the federal government shall have the authority to regulate commerce between the states, with Indian nations and with the international community, basically, paraphrase doesn't say sole authority, it just says has authority. And again, each of these stories I could take an hour or two to tell in more depth, but that's the basis. So starting in the late 1800s, hundreds and hundreds of prote- what we... if The word protectionist, we're told, is a bad word, right? Oh, well, you're just being protectionist. Well, if you think about what that means, it's protecting... We have an imperfect, very imperfect democracy, but state legislatures are attempting to respond to the outrage from citizens, and they're passing laws that protect the health and welfare of their communities in response to outrage from citizens or concerns from citizens. And starting in the late 1800s, they're told, that's no longer legal because you're violating corporate rights to sell, manufacture, produce, transport, whatever they want, anywhere they want within the United States. This is the, com- the first use of corporate constitutional rights being found in the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And hundreds and hundreds of protectionist laws were thrown out, local, county, and state laws, because they violated corporate rights for the first time. Another quick example is Singer's Sewing Machine Um, well, there were lots of decisions because it was product after product was being challenged. So um, I think if you, I think you just put the oleomargarine case in, in, into you know, Supreme Court oleomargarine, I think, I don't remember the exact name, but there are a lot of different Supreme Court cases in the mid to late 1800s. So Singer's sewing machine is another example. People, I mean, it's hard to imagine in this day and age, but sewing machines were made cottage industry style one at a time. Was this through enough times that there were different Supreme Court judges involved? Decades. Or was it pervasive? Yeah, this is pervasive, yeah. So Singer Sewing Machines wanted to start mass-producing sewing machines. Local communities wanted their cottage industries protected against unfair, what they saw as unfair and ruinous competition from much bigger companies, and they tried to get their communities and their states to prohibit the product these products from being sold to compete against their cottage industries does this sound familiar right this is still going on today i mean in a way you could say that this is very similar to the north american free trade agreement the world trade organization and its global trade tribunal right this is global this is global trade at an early level in fact if you look at the whole history the remarkable thing that you find out is that the the legal norms that give national governments and international corporations the right to to overrule, to get the right to go to the World Trade Organization's tribunal, which has the authority, amazingly enough, to overrule nation states to say, you have to allow this product into your nation, or you have to get rid of that environmental or labor law because it violates another nation's or another corporation's rights to sell or produce or manufacture whatever in your country, this all goes back to the mid-1800s. The whole legal norm that we live under now with global trade treaties started literally in the mid-1800s when corporations got rights under the Commerce Clause of the US Constitution. It's a direct history, just getting a more and more expanded, right? And now we have the, the newest one that's about to be fast-tracked through the national government. I can't, there's probably somebody here who's following it. Trans-Pacific. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is the latest global trade treaty. You read it and it's really scary. Right? It just gets worse and worse. It all started when we lost control over communities having protectionist authority to protect the health and welfare of their communities. Third example, in the 1880s, and this was really the the... the the death of this early legal and cultural norm that I'm describing of the proper relationship between we the people and our corporate creations. In the 1880s, the state legislatures of New Jersey and Delaware decided that they could rewrite corporate law in their states, get rid of all the requirements and prohibitions in the chartering process, and they could convince pretty much all the major companies to recharter in New Jersey and Delaware and they would never and they would no longer have to follow these long lists of requirements and prohibitions and that this would be a cash cow for those two state governments and that's what happened and to this day almost every major corporation is chartered in New Jersey or Delaware yeah so that's the third one. My, my mentor, um, Richard Grossman, one of my mentors in this work, calls this the, the, um, the counter-revolutionary acts of the New Jersey and state and Delaware state legislatures. Because really this, this history of the subordination of corporations under us is really quite a revolutionary concept. right? It's a fundamental shift of power from pre-American revolution. So that's the third of four examples. And finally, number four, we get to 1886, which is the birth of corporate personhood. That's in 1886, the Supreme Court rules in a court case that, ta- that, is, that starts in, in Northern California. It's called Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Corporation, or company. They rule that a corporation is a person under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution the 14th Amendment is the one that gives equal protection and due process to freed slaves, or more accurately, to freed male slaves. Right? Because female slaves aren't persons in any way until 1920, when women win the right to vote. Just a quick clarifying question? Yeah, Paul, if I understand Santa Clara. It was a head it. it was not in the And it doesn't matter anymore. But depending on who you read, and Tom Hartman is the primary source of this story that you're saying, the court reporter announced before the case even was heard that we're not going to discuss whether corporations are are, are, are persons or not. We are all of the opinion that they are. And it then heard the case as what it had originally been, which is a property tax case. Where Southern Pacific Railroad was claiming that it had the authority it had the right to pay the same uh, property tax rates as human beings were having to pay in Santa Clara County and that it was discriminatory for a corporation to be given a, a higher rate of property tax and I say it 's irrelevant that it was a head note instead of in the court decision because the way precedent the way law works in this country. Is as soon as that decision was made by the Supreme Court, the corporate attorneys start pushing all of these other cases through that 14th Amendment ruling. And within the next couple of decades, almost 300 court decisions, Supreme Court decisions, are made that confirm that corporations are persons under law. And the 14th Amendment was used only a couple dozen times in those next few decades to protect the rights of black people in this country, a couple dozen versus almost 300. And now there's legal precedent. So it's not as easy, easy as just saying, well, all we have to do is get them to reverse that decision. No, that's not how law works in this country. We now have 100 years of legal precedent sitting on top of that decision. So corporate personhood starts in 1886. And what I want to point out to you is that I've already told you a whole bunch of history of corporations winning Very significant constitutional rights that aren't about personhood. So one of the things I'd love you to do if you talk about this stuff already or if you start talking about it now is to use the phrase corporate constitutional rights, not corporate personhood. Because corporate personhood rights don't start until 1886. But they've already won access to the U.S. Constitution way before then, time after time. And I only mentioned Two specific cases, but there are lots more, and the timeline there is really illustrative of this. And hopefully, at the break, some people will have a look at that. Say that instead of corporate personhood, corporate constitutional rights. Yeah, that don't get tied directly to them being persons. Now, once they win personhood in 1886, then they have a whole new avenue for the growth of corporate rights because now they have access to an amendment of the Constitution the 14th Amendment. And so they start looking, (coughs) lawyers start looking for other amendments where the word person in the amendment could be interpreted by a court to include corporations. And between 1886 and today, they win literally hundreds of new rights. And the definitions just keep expanding. So for example, they win property rights. Initially, property rights are tangible property rights. In other words, stuff that's physically in existence, right? You know, land, farm, right? Animals, machinery. But ultimately, the big gem of a win is intangible property rights, right? Which is intellectual property, for example, right? Once corporate persons win access to intangible property rights, the expansion just gets much faster again. So again, thinking of a company like Monsanto, right? Patents genetic material, Right, that nobody can then compete against, and it has property rights over that product. It has intangible property rights as a corporate person. Interestingly enough, one of the expansions of property rights um, is a series of legal decisions throughout the mid to late 20th century gives corporations constitutional property rights over their Mm decision-making. The act of corporate board decision-making becomes a protected property right of a corporate person. Now what that means is really significant. What it means is that any decision that a corporate board might choose to make and the kinds of decisions they make that affect us in a really big way are what's going to, you know, production decisions, what's going to get produced, how it's going to mm-hmm. get produced, are there going to be waste byproducts, where is it going to be produced, right? And all sorts of other related questions. Mm-hmm investment decisions what are we going to do with our profits that's a big question right are they going to be given back to you know when you're i mean how many people here think about this every month they send in their check for their utility bill how many people think to themselves how come the i don't know who your local utility is if you're lucky it's public is it public almost almost (laughs) So most communities obviously don't have public power. Seattle does. Some other major cities do, but most don't. You know, how many people actually think to themselves in a, in a, in a corporate, power, corporate utility kind of situation, I pay my monthly bill every month. How come I have no say over how that money is invested? What do they do with the profits, right? Do the profits come back to all of the rate payers in the form of discounts on solar panels for their roofs? Do the profits go into higher pay for the CEO, right? Do the profits go to build a nuclear power plant, right? We don't even think of ourselves as being part of that, appropriately part of that decision-making. Part of that is that we're now so colonized that it doesn't really occur to us to understand that corporations are making investment decisions because they've won Supreme Court decisions that give them property rights protection over their decision-making, Right, And you've noticed when a major industry that has been providing living wage jobs to your community, I mean, most communities had you know real manufacturing once upon a time with real wages and real benefits, and they all ended up going to sweatshops overseas. And the townsfolk would go to the mayor or the county or the state and say, stop them. Well, the government would say, we can't. Why? Again, we don't really think about it, right? Because we've forgotten our history. They can't because they don't have authority over corporate decision-making at all. It's a protected property right of a corporate person. And the last piece is First Amendment rights that I'll get to. I mean, I'm again, I'm just kind of very, just touching lightly over this history. First Amendment free speech rights have become very significant for corporate persons as well. And again, anything you can get the judge's to call free speech or to call property, all of a sudden there's a new wedge that can be broadened year by year. So what is free speech? Well, in the 1970s, free speech becomes um, uh, how much money you can donate to a political campaign. In 1976, the Supreme Court rules that money is equivalent to speech and that to limit how much money you can give to a candidate is to limit your right to speak under the First Amendment. Now, they're not really worried about you. They were thinking about the corporate persons when they made that decision because that's where most of the money you know, is, is ultimately coming from. And corporations also won um, the right to not speak because they argued, well, if we have First Amendment rights, does that not give us the right to choose when to not speak? And they've won those decisions in the Supreme Court more and more expansively. What does that include? It includes things like labeling of products Right? This is our label. That's our speech. You can't tell us what to print on our label. That violates our right to not speak. And there are decisions now that keep being expanded there. So, you know, labeling of GMOs. You have in this state a right to know about GMOs and food products. That will immediately, if you get it passed, it will immediately be challenged by corporate lawyers as a violate of their violation of their right to not speak. Which is protected under their First Amendment rights. Right? And who's thinking about this? Well, our activist single issue communities really aren't thinking about this. <clears throat> so far, until they win more expansive decisions from the Supreme Court that say that's a violation of their free speech rights. This is constantly being expanded and expanded, First Amendment rights. Recently, not that recently, four, five, six years ago, Nike Corporation, starting in a court case in California, actually argued to, to a state judge that, uh, that one of the subordinate rights of the right to speak is the right to lie. <laughs> I kid you not. It's one of the last cases on the chart, on the timeline, that of course we have the right to mislead because we have the right to speak. And the Supreme Court decided they weren't going to hear that case and they tossed it back to the state court. So the, Supreme, so the corporations have not yet won the right to lie. But this is, the, this is our direction, right? And this is going to continue to grow and expand until we shift the way we do our politics in this country. We, if we don't really soon figure out how to start pulling corporate rights away we're in serious trouble. I and mean, we're already in serious trouble. But it's only going to get worse and worse. Um, you're not going to know if you look at, I'd say, a cleaner, what's in it that might harm you because it's proprietary information. That's right. And thus being label, they only know <coughs> what they want and not all the best ingredients. Right. So it can say 99% proprieta- inert ingredients, which is proprietary information, i.e., They have the right to not tell you what 99% of the product is made of. That's a right to not speak. That's what that's about. And they have property. Those are two different, they have property rights and they have the right, and they have First Amendment rights going on right there. Vermont tried to get mandatory labeling of bovine growth hormone in dairy products. Dairy corporations that were using bovine growth hormones said that violated our right to not speak I mean, that's what the actual case was about. Again, the fact that we know something about Vermont, a lot of us, I'll bet in the room, have heard of this case, but we haven't thought about it as a corporate rights battle. That's what all of this stuff is about. It's about corporate rights. You have a mill in this town that has been a big issue for decades, right? The board of directors of that corporation has tremendous rights as a corporate board in all sorts of ways. And unless you understand where those rights get filtered into, you're ultimately not going to win. And what's interesting is the movement that I'm part of, the community rights movement, that I'll tell you some details about after the break, is starting to understand how to challenge the structure the legal structure here, and not just going after one corporate problem at a time without understanding where they get this power, this political and legal power. Uh, one brief I'd like you to touch on, if you could, um, Powell in, uh, you know, in the 1970s, and also a question about um, <clears throat> labeling. I don't understand why this holds true for GMO labeling when it didn't hold true the tobacco packaging? It's, it's a great question. It actually does hold true for the tobacco pr- packaging. Um, but what's different is that there's a limit to which corporate directors are willing to go to be seen by we the people as a as a deviant, evil company, right? That doesn't give a crap about the health and welfare of the people, right? There's a limit to which If once people are mobilized to the mass that they were around labeling of of tobacco products, they'll, they'll back off. Now, they paid enormous fines once upon a time, the tobacco industry, because they finally did admit that they'd been lying. Under oath, they admitted that they'd been lying for decades, that they'd known that their products caused cancer and other serious problems. And they paid massive fines. I don't know if you know this, but... Corporate fines are tax deductible. (laughs) The corporate attorney fees to defend them in these cases are tax deductible. The advertising to us that explains to us why they're being unfairly treated is tax deductible. But they still had to pay vast fines. And where did they get all that new capital? They went to the third world and they addicted a whole new class of human beings, teenagers in impoverished third world countries. And that became the latest growth point for them to raise all of this new money to pay their fines that were tax deductible. I'm not going to speak directly to the other point you made because it's just one specific example and I'm actually going to do something I'm I'm trying to stay more general and an overview. What do you make of a Fox News firing two reporters for, for not refusing to lie, and that went up to the Supreme Court? And the Supreme Court said yes, they can fire them. That kind of how does that fit in? How do you see that? Um, if you if you actually go and look at the transcripts and see if it has anything to do with corporate constitutional mm-hmm. rights, you'll see you'll see it right in the argument. They're not shy. Corporate lawyers are not shy about using corporate rights in their legal briefs. Mm-hmm. We just don't hear about it in the way it's being reported. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I, I don't know the specifics. I'm not going to respond to the specifics. Yeah, that's Report. not that's not unusual no, at all. I mean, I so. reporters are either you know disciplined or fired all the time for refusing, you know, to not cover a story, you know, refusing to shut up about what they're mm-hmm. what they're researching. Yeah. yeah. Acts that where maybe some land is set aside, corporation What's preventing them from... That's kind of a complicated, it's a really good question and a complicated answer. Let me just kind of touch on it very briefly. So believe it or not, the Commerce Clause that I was just telling you about has ended up being used in virtually all of our environmental and labor and civil rights law. When Congress vo- passes... Brand new kinds of legislation like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, National Environmental Protection Act, etc. The Supreme Court has gotten so powerful and so insistent that it has authority to veto new kinds of law from Congress that Congress has gotten used to understanding that they need to embed their new kinds of law somewhere in the Constitution itself where it's, it's likely to be overturned by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. And so, throughout the the 20th century, and to this day, almost every, I think actually, every single national environmental law and every single national labor law and many civil rights laws from the mid-20th century are all written to be embedded in the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which is very odd, if you think about it, right? That labor rights are embedded in commerce. Right, that it's good for commerce to give labor some rights because then there, won't, there will be fewer labor disruptions and that's good for business. Right? These are the arguments that are made to convince the Supreme Court. So it's these absolutely tortured connections to a business clause in the U.S. Constitution. So the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and all these other environmental laws, there's these tortured explanations as to how to, clean, how to link protection of of water and rivers, for example, to the Commerce Clause, it's because rivers cross state boundaries, right? Black people looking for racial justice have to sometimes cross state boundaries. Therefore, the Commerce Clause kicks in. So it's all linked to the Commerce Clause. Workers, to find work, sometimes have to change states. The Commerce Clause kicks in. Right? Because it becomes defined, literally, a river crossing a state line becomes defined in these laws as an act of interstate commerce. It's bizarre. And so, one of the, and, oh, and Obamacare, same thing, Obama's um, uh, health care reforms were embedded both in the Commerce Clause and in tax law because it had to be embedded somewhere or the Supreme Court would just say, you know, no way, overruled. So um, yes, environmental, nature is defined as property in all of our environmental laws. I don't know if you really think of it in that way, but it's true. And there's a rights of nature movement that I'll be talking about in the second half that takes nature out of being defined as property and recognizes that it has rights, just like we have rights that can be protected. Overly brief response.